Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. But perhaps one of the most uh, popular comedy duos of all time was the famous Abbott and Costello. Many of you have heard those names before, but Bud Abbott and Lou Costello specialized in that rapid-fire slapstick type of comedy that left many in the audience in stitches. And uh, we would see their sense of humor today and be like, man, my my, how times have changed uh, since then. But many would argue that this uh, most famous sketches of all that they've ever done was this sketch entitled, Who's On First? In short, Who's On First is a comedy routine that uses this play on words as the premise behind the comedy. The premise behind the sketch is that Abbott uh, is identifying the different players on a baseball team for Costello, and the catch is that the names of each player is posed as a question. For example, the first base name is who, the second base name is what, third base is named I don't know, and so on and so forth. And so at one point in the routine, Costello believes that the first base name is actually naturally rather than who. The conversation between the two goes as follows. Abbott says, you throw the ball to first base. Costello says, then who gets it? Abbott says, naturally. Costello says, naturally. Abbott says, now you've got it. Costello says, okay, I throw the ball to naturally. Abbott says, you don't. You throw it to who? Costello says, naturally. Abbott says, well, that's it. Say it that way. Costello says, that's what I said. Abbott says, you did not. Costello says, I said, throw the ball to naturally. Abbott says, you don't. You throw it to who? Costello says, naturally. Now, a misunderstanding of names poses great confusion for Costello. But the main problem in that conversation is that uh, it really ends up being the foundation of the comedy of the sketch. Both men come to different conclusions based upon the same word or phrase. And because of that great confusion, in this case, uh, uh, hilarity ensues, confusion ensues. But there is perhaps no other more confusing topic of Christianity. Now, there's multiple different ones. I had a conversation this past week with a, 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 a couple that uh, shall remain nameless because they're not members yet. So you know how the rules go. If you're members, then I can say your name from the pulpit. Uh, but they're not members yet. We had a conversation about predestination and all those wonderful topics, right? But there's perhaps, um, in the category of being the most confused, no more confused in the subject of Christianity than the subject of baptism. Baptism. Some people believe that baptism is a means of salvation. Other people believe that you should be baptized or could be baptized by being sprinkled. Others believe that your baby should be baptized in order to have one foot into heaven, one foot out of heaven. And of course, as we would stand as a church, baptism is a symbol of what is taking place in your heart, but not a means of salvation. The question, though, because of this subject is, while water baptism, because there's actually beyond baptism itself when it comes to water baptism, is the subject of baptism by the Holy Spirit. How many of you have ever heard of that before? Holy Spirit baptism. Okay, that's another thing. There's a whole denomination that is based upon the fact that you are baptized by the Holy Spirit after salvation. And it's a moment that occurs later on. And as a result of being baptized by the Holy Spirit, you are then given these set of gifts to speak in tongues and healings and all these other things. So while water baptism, as we understand that particular part, is necessary for salvation, what about, or is not necessary for salvation, what about it makes it necessary, and what exactly does it mean? What's the difference between water baptism 
and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps the biggest question of all, if baptism is for the Christian, then why did Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords himself, experience baptism? These are questions that we are going to seek to answer this morning as we continue our journey through this book of Matthew. If you've not done so already, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 3. As many of you know, our teaching theme this year is Make Disciples, and that will continue to be our teaching theme for this year as we shift our ministry focus to more of a mobile church as we pray for a permanent uh, type of church location in the future. We are seeking to strip away all the frills and all the different things that are unnecessary. I shouldn't say unnecessary. There are extras for, mission, uh, for, for ministry to take place in order to continue to follow the command of God to make disciples. God commands his disciples to go out and make disciples in Matthew chapter uh, 28. And along with that command, we see the model of the church given in Acts chapter 2 where those individuals gather together for a time of Bible study. And so the two pillars that we will focus on this year and really for the foreseeable future are the two basic pillars of making disciples, and that is gathering together to hear the truth and going, which is evangelism, sharing your faith and leaving the work up to the Lord. But to fully grasp this concept of genuine biblical discipleship, we will seek to spend our entire time this year and into next year as it seems necessary, focusing on the life of Christ, but primarily focusing on really using the template of the book of Matthew to lay out what the life of Christ looked like. And we're going to refer to the other Gospels as well, but Matthew really being the focus of Jesus Christ coming to earth to establish the kingdom of God. And that's what he sought to do, and that's the intent of Matthew writing this Gospel. He is writing it to the Jews to help them understand that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He came here for a purpose, and that was to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. At this particular point in the journey of Jesus Christ, his, his, his official ministry is about to begin. As we examined last week, God in his great sovereign grace chose John the Baptist to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. We see that Jesus Christ does not need that. He could accomplish the will of God without a forerunner. But God in his grace, as he seeks to do with us as well, chose a broken, imperfect, finite human being such as John the Baptist to pave the way for Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist is traveling all throughout the world, or throughout his region particularly, and is preaching this message of repentance. This message of repentance was different than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees taught. They taught that you could become righteous by keeping the law. John the Baptist said, no, 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 you can't do anything to be righteous. It's because of your sin that you were unrighteous. And so therefore, the only thing that you can do is repent and turn to Christ because it's by him. He's the only way for salvation. And so the John the Baptist goes fully armed with this subject of repentance and he's preaching this, this subject all throughout the region. But in addition to that, he's practicing this act of baptism. It's referred to as John's baptism. This baptism is different than what we experience today. You say, well, Pastor Brandon, how is it different? You go under the water and come up just the same, and that is true. But the meaning behind the baptism of John the Baptist is different than the meaning behind ours because of this primary reason. Jesus Christ had not died, and he had not risen again for our sins. And so the law was not fully completed yet. And so the baptism of John the Baptist was showing the people that they were in need of cleansing. And so therefore, the water was representation of them turning from their wicked ways and turning to God. 
See, in order for, and this is oftentimes a question that is given um, in seminary and other things as well, is how did those that were prior to Jesus dying on the cross become followers of Christ? And of course, the answer that is given is faith. We see this in Hebrews chapter 11, how Abraham and, and Noah and others walked by faith. Their whole life was committed to faith of following God and the call of God. But a Gentile, whom we all would be, I don't believe there's anybody that is Jewish in their nationality within our church. So all of us being Gentiles, in order for us to follow Christ, in order for us to become a follower of God, so to speak, we had to become a Jewish proselyte. A Jewish proselyte was a Gentile who renounced their ways of sin, which is referred to as the Gentile way, and took on the ways of the Jewish people. In other words, they became Jewish in their practice. And so the act of them demonstrating that, or the first step of that, so to speak, was this John's baptism. It was revealing that they had sin, they were in need of being cleansed, and so therefore John baptized them. We see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Again, giving out the framework. And then he adds, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What John is preaching is, my baptism is insufficient for your full salvation. In other words, it is only partial for what will come to be. Jesus Christ will come and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which is what we will talk about in a few moments, ultimately salvation. And so John the Baptist is going through and he's preaching this word, but there's an interesting thing that takes place. We see as John the Baptist is preaching Jesus Christ entering into the scene. And John the Baptist is now confused. Because Jesus Christ desires to be baptized. We're going to talk about what led to his confusion in just a few moments. But we pick up this account in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he followed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This act of baptism is one of the foundational pillars when it comes to making disciples. In fact, this command to be baptized was given by Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, to the disciples to go out and make disciples by teaching them and baptizing them and discipling them or teaching them in the way of the Lord. So it is important for us as Christians to understand God's model and mode and method of baptism as is demonstrated here through Jesus Christ. But to be honest, in observing this passage, we do need to gain some clarification when it comes to what Jesus was doing when it came to baptism and what it means for us today. So the title of our message this morning is The Significance of Christ's Baptism. The moment, this moment in Scripture is the first time that we actually see Jesus Christ come to the scene since he was a little boy that was found in the temple. Jesus is roughly 30 years old. When he was in the temple, many guesstimate that he was right around 12 to 13 years old. And so you've got uh, about 17-ish, give or take, years that you hear nothing about Jesus Christ. 
So what was he doing? Well, we know nothing other than the fact that we assume that he was living with his mom and dad and he was working probably with his father because the Bible does give indication that Jesus Christ was a trained carpenter, which is interesting. Okay, this is, has nothing to do with the sermon. It does have to do with Jesus Christ. Um, I understand art. Well, I don't understand art. I understand that there are certain artist representations, but it always bothers me that when they paint Jesus Christ as like this weak, feeble man, you ever noticed that? He was a carpenter. More than likely, he was not a weak, feeble man. He was a, he was a rough man uh, that, that, that did a lot of manual labor. That's just a side note of freebie there. But that's what Jesus Christ was doing with his father. He was learning the trade of uh, construction and carpentry. And so he's living at home, but what we see Jesus Christ doing is he enters into the scene of, of, of really him going towards John the Baptist, and more than likely that was the first time in which Jesus Christ officially left his homeland. So before we jump into that, we're going to first look at, before we look at the Christian baptism, the baptism of Jesus. What does it mean, and how does it apply for us today? So first off, we see the baptism of Jesus. Matthew begins in verse 13 by stating that Jesus was from Galilee to be baptized by John. He came from Galilee. Now, Galilee is a region, and within that region, you have the town of Nazareth. Now, I don't have a map in front of us, but if you were to look at the historical map of what the Middle East looked like at that particular time, you're going to see Galilee, specifically Nazareth, quite a bit of ways north of where John the Baptist was baptizing. Now, we see in John, uh, specifically, John chapter 1, verse 28, that John the Baptist was in a region known as Bethabara. Now, I think that only the New King James and the King James actually include that particular word there, uh, but it's derived from the original context, which uh, usually they refer to as a region beyond Jordan. And of uh, a bunch of associations and examining that together, uh, they could specifically pinpoint that to an area known as Bethabara or also Bethany. Now, it's important for us to include that because the location where John the Baptist was and where Jesus Christ was coming down to meet John the Baptist was the first time in which Jesus Christ officially inaugurated his earthly ministry. All of that goes together to fulfill a prophecy that both Isaiah and Malachi speak of, that Jesus Christ would come from this particular region, he would be the king of kings, and he would fulfill and be the answer to the man's problem, would be the ultimate Messiah. Now, we have a picture of where they think that John the Baptist or uh, baptized Jesus, and we don't know exactly the exact portion of water, but this is a general area. If you were to go to Israel and go into the Middle East, you could go and tour this area, which is uh, just the, the, the Jordan River, just above the Dead Sea, which is where Jesus Christ was baptized. Now, another interesting fact that we must note is the fact that John the Baptist may not have known who Jesus was until this particular moment. As I mentioned last week, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. They were second cousins. Uh, Elizabeth, which was John's mother, and Mary, which was Jesus' mother, were first cousins. And so they were distantly related, but we can assume, we don't know for sure, that their family reunions and gatherings probably did not happen too often. So I don't believe that John the Baptist and Jesus Christ had too much interaction uh, between each other growing up. We see specifically in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, which is John's account of this gospel, um, 
It says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes the way of the sin of the world. Okay, now he recognizes who Jesus is as he's approaching uh, him to be baptized. He continues and says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is performed before me, for he was before me. And then he says this, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So you look at the comment that is made and recorded by John, you would assume that before this moment, John the Baptist did not know Jesus Christ as who he truly was, being the Messiah. You would say, well, Pastor Brandon, that makes no sense, because in Matthew it seems to indicate that he exactly knew who he was. What we see take place in Matthew chapter 3 is the result of special revelation by God to John the Baptist. According to what he says here in John and to what we see take place here in Matthew, it wasn't until this time that God, through special revelation, revealed to John the Baptist who uh, Jesus truly was, being the Messiah, which is why he responds, Here comes, behold, the Lamb of God that has come to take away our sins. Now, to give you a little bit more background, that term lamb was extremely important among the Jewish culture, extremely important for us today. As we understand in the sacrificial system, the lamb was, was used by the uh, high priest to be able to uh, uh, sacrifice, the spotless blemish, uh, without blemish lamb was used by the high priest to be able to sacrifice for the sins uh, on behalf of the people. You'd have this atonement, this seat of atonement more or less that was associated with the Ark of the Covenant and all those things, this mercy seat. The, the priest in the Old Testament would take the blood of that, that lamb, it would sprinkle upon that mercy seat and it would be the atonement on behalf of the sins of the people. And so when John the Baptist refers to Jesus Christ now as being, behold, this lamb, he is making a significant statement to all the Jewish people that everything that the Old Testament is pointing towards, it's in this man right here. And so John the Baptist goes and he approaches Jesus, or, he, or Jesus approaches John the Baptist to be baptized. Now John the Baptist is confused. Jesus Christ prevents him, tries to, and says, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. So, well, Pastor Brandon... Why was that confusing for John the Baptist? Remember the purpose of John the Baptist's baptism. It was to demonstrate the need of that person to repent of their sin so that they can become a follower of Christ. John the Baptist thinks that Jesus Christ, believing everything that he's been told by this spotless lamb, is now being baptized or desires to be baptized, which would indicate to John the Baptist that Jesus is repentant of some sin that's happening in his own life. Well, that makes no sense whatsoever. Now, other people have drawn other conclusions as to why uh, Jesus is being baptized. Uh, for, for a fact, some say that Jesus felt that he was sinful, as we just mentioned, that he needed John, John's baptism. Others concluded that John and Jesus conspired together to fulfill the purpose of John's baptism, and Jesus doing so would give some sort of backing to what was being take place here. Some say that Jesus came as a representative of a sinful man and therefore was being baptized on behalf of all men. And some believe that Jesus was baptized to honor John's baptism, but all of these are inaccurate because they serve no grounds in Scripture whatsoever. But there are two reasons as to why Jesus was being baptized. First off, we see this. It was a demonstration of obedience. 
a demonstration of obedience. Jesus says in verse 15, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What was Jesus saying? Ultimately, Jesus was referring to God's overall will when it came to his plan of redemption. Jesus was not getting baptized because he recognized himself to be a sinner. He certainly wasn't claiming to be a sinner, therefore needing repentance. In addition, Jesus was not getting baptized because he was representing all of mankind through that baptism. Jesus was fulfilling his role as a spotless lamb that would take on the sins of all mankind. Through this act of baptism, what Jesus was doing is he was demonstrating his identification with sinners who were in need of repentance, and the baptism of Jesus itself was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ taking on the sins of mankind, dying on their behalf, and raising for the justification of mankind. But not only was Jesus Christ demonstrating obedience through his baptism, he was also setting an example for all Christians to follow. John MacArthur states this in his New Testament commentary. He says, It seems that one reason Jesus submitted to baptism was to give an example of obedience to his followers. As the king of kings, Jesus recognized that he had no ultimate obligation to pay taxes to a human government. And when Peter, on one occasion, asked about the matter, Jesus replied, What you think, Simon, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or pull tax from their sons or from strangers? And upon this, uh, they say, from strangers. Jesus said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt, but let we, lest we give offense, give to it to them for you and me. And he, John MacArthur goes on to say, as scripture makes clear in many places, it is proper and right for believers, even though they are the sons of God, to honor and pay taxes to human government. In every case, Jesus modeled obedience. In his baptism, he acknowledged that John's standard of righteousness was valid and in action affirmed it as the will of God to which men are to be subject. So yes, it's true. Jesus Christ was the Son of God and also God himself. He did not have to be baptized. But in that example of him being baptized, he is demonstrating obedience and faithfulness to God. The act of baptism demonstrated obedience to his heavenly Father. Although Jesus was not baptized because of his need to be cleansed, he was baptized, as he says, to fulfill all righteousness as it pertained to the command of God. What Jesus was doing in that baptism is he was publicly identifying with the kingdom of God through that action. After the baptism of Jesus, an interesting event takes place which officially launches the ministry of Jesus Christ, and that is this letter B. It was a declaration of his deity. Not only was it a demonstration of his obedience, it was a declaration of his deity. Look at what takes place here in verses 16 through 17. It said, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. There is something very significant happening in these verses here. And what you see here is a full display of the Trinity among the three different parts. There's a, there's a common belief and I was taught this growing up as a way to understand the Trinity, which is interesting because the, more I, the longer I've been a pastor, which hasn't been very long, uh, the more I realized no one can understand fully the Trinity and how that works. And so we attempt to try to explain it, and in doing so, we uh, become an accidental heretic. 
Uh, there's this term called modulism. Modulism basically means that uh, the Trinity is three different parts and uh, they all three act in a different way at a different moment rather than uh, specifically broken up together. For example, the, uh, the illustration that I was often given is the way to understand Trinity is through the property of water. Okay? How many of you have heard this before? The property of water is the way to understand the Trinity. The danger with that is, this is how they would explain it, you have water, the compound of H2O, and it can come in three different forms. It can come in gas, liquid, and solid. Well, you can't have gas and liquid all at the same time. It's either one or the other. Well, that's a problem when it comes to the Trinity. What you see here, all three different parts, but yet they're all still God, part of the Godhead working together, but they're all working differently all at the same time. So, for example, you have the Holy Spirit represented by the dove. Now, we can assume as to why he came through the form of a dove, and that could be because it was to demonstrate that Jesus Christ came to bring gentleness and peace. Because whenever you see dove in Scripture, you see that in relation to peace. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, the Bible says uh, in verse 16 that we ought to be wise as serpents and harmless as dove. But we can't assume that he came in the form of a dove because it means his gentleness. All we know is that the Holy Spirit descended as a dove and landed upon the shoulder of Jesus Christ. In addition to that, you see the Father. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. You hear the voice of the Father. So you see all three parts of the Trinity all recognizing one another as being God. So you have three parts in one being God. And that's as far as what we can explain it without using any other example. Because to my understanding, there is not one human example that can properly explain the Trinity and how the Trinity operates together because it's something that is beyond us. It is in the realm of God. So you have three different parts all working together, which brings the fact that, underlying the fact that Jesus Christ is 100% God. He is deity. At that particular moment, as that descends down, Jesus or God uh, or the Father affirming that Jesus Christ is the Son in whom he is well pleased, everybody recognizes now that this man, Jesus, is someone special. And it's at that moment that Jesus Christ officially launches his earthly ministry. And so that is the significance of Jesus' baptism. He followed obedience, and it also demonstrated his deity and launched out his, his ministry. But now let's bring it to the Christian standpoint. The second point we're going to look at this morning is the baptism of the Christian. Now, I recognize the fact that many in here have been baptized, and so you probably, at least I would pray that you would understand the, the role behind that, but I'm not going to take that for granted. And as we continue to, to look through Scripture here, we are going to observe it as, as we continue to go through here. But the baptism of the Christian, first off, what it does for us is it's a demonstration of obedience. It's a demonstration of obedience. There's been multiple times where I've uh, re led someone to the Lord. They've received Christ, and we brought up this subject of baptism to help them understand, and their response was, you know, I need to go home back home, and I'm not really sure about it. I need to go home, and I need to pray about it. It, whether or not this is something that the Lord want me to do. Baptism, and I say this carefully, is not something that we need to pray about in regards to seeking the will of God. Why? Because it's commanded directly in Scripture that you're saved and then you're baptized. Again, not to fully complete out your salvation, but to demonstrate with the world who you now represent. It is a public declaration that you are now identifying with the kingdom of God. 
We see all throughout Scripture multiple different times in which you see the apostles preaching. You need to repent and then be baptized. Repent and then be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter tells the crowd, if they're preaching salvation, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, baptism was this command to be followed. The Bible later indicates in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that those who gladly received his word were what? They were then baptized. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8, we're going to read a story here, an account of exactly what took place between Philip and a man that is known as the Ethiopian eunuch. It doesn't give his name, it just gives up that uh, term Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 8 verse 27, the Bible says, And Philip arose. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. I love that. The, man, uh, the, the Holy Spirit moves Philip and Philip goes. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said to him, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Again, mind you, in the timeline of Scripture, Jesus Christ had already ascended into heaven. He had already fulfilled the law. He continues on, and he asked Philip to come and sit with him. And the place in the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So... The eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him, shared the gospel with him. The Bible says, now as they went down to the road, they came to the water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. What he's saying here that the prerequisite to baptism is what? salvation. Baptism does you no good if you've never given your life to Christ. And so he answers, and he answered and said to him, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. He received Christ. He is now making a public declaration that I am a follower of Christ. You don't see any praying about whether or not this is the will of God. If you were to follow the example of what Jesus did, being baptized, we as Christians, the first step of obedience we say after salvation is to be baptized. But the second thing that we see here when it comes to baptism is a declaration of identification, not salvation. A declaration of identification. There was confusion. This is where it takes place among baptism. Some believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. And I got it. There are points in Scripture where it seems to indicate that. I wish that Peter would have worded things a little bit differently in his sermon. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. God, can we have clarified that just a little bit at that particular moment? Because it seems as if you need to be baptized in order to be saved. It's, many people use those scripture references, but you see additional points all throughout scripture that indicate that it is not that. A prime example would be the thief that's hanging on the cross. As he's there, he's having a conversation with Jesus and he believes that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus responds back to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And obviously the thief was not baptized. That's just one example. But in Romans chapter 6, this will be the last scripture reference I ask that you would turn to this morning. In Romans chapter 6, you see really the foundational 
point of what people would hold to when it comes to this subject of Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism is the time in which uh, the Bible says, or, or people would say the Bible says, that you receive Christ, and then at some later point, the Holy Spirit will come and will baptize you into the family of God, and you will therefore receive spiritual gifts of healings and tongues and so on and so forth. We do not hold to that because we believe that baptism, Holy Spirit baptism, takes occurrence at the moment of salvation specifically. I'll give you a few scripture references to support that here in just a few moments. But in Romans chapter 6, you see uh, the Apostle Paul, he's talking on this subject of sanctification, which is this process of becoming more like Christ. He begins in verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in the sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died live in sin any longer? Okay, first off, he's addressing this thought that because of grace, we can go out and live as we desire to live. If you were to read chapter 5, he's talking about grace. It's all because of grace that we grow in Christ, and that is true. But he also recognizes the fact that people try to, try to impose upon the grace of God. Hey, I'm covered in grace, so therefore I can go out and get drunk every weekend because I'm covered in grace. All right, I, I'm covered in grace, so therefore I can go and steal things because God will forgive me. I'm covered in grace. While it is true you will not lose your salvation, there is evidence of your fruit of whether or not you're a true follower of Christ based upon what your desires are. But the Apostle Paul says, before you can assume to impose upon the grace of God, do not do, God forbid, you cannot do so. He uses this language here in verse 2 where it says, certainly not. For us, that is uh, strong words. But in the Greek language, it is the strongest of words to say, uh, you absolutely cannot think that way. Like, it's like us saying, God forbid, absolutely not. No way in the world can you do that. That's what that phrase certainly not means. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 3. He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism and death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin." And so, going back to what I mentioned earlier about some use this as Holy Spirit baptism, others use this as a support for baptismal regeneration. Because it seems as if, he says here, that once you're baptized, the act of being baptized itself, you are now uh, fully saved. You have identified with Jesus, and now for, therefore you are fully saved for the remission of sins. But that's not exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. If you were to look at the root word of baptized or baptizo, it means to dip, plunge, or immerse. It means to fully encompass, which is why the correct method of baptism is to go fully under the water. There are exceptions to that. Uh, I remember uh, when I was, when I was um, first starting in the church, we had this lady who had received Christ, and she had a... Uh, trach. She had, so she had a, a, a hole right here, and obviously if you got water in it, it would not be good. I did not put her under the water. I did not want to kill someone within our church. And so uh, the grace was there. We, uh, she went in the water, and I kind of put my, you know, but the whole, the whole point is to be baptized fully is to go underneath the water. Why? Because it is a representation 
of what Jesus Christ had done for us. In this particular moment, when the Apostle Paul is saying that you've been baptized, he's not necessarily talking about water baptism. What he's talking about is your, when you received Christ, your sin, your filth, and your unrighteousness was crucified just as if Christ was crucified and died on our behalf. And just as Christ rose again, and he now in his fully redemptive state, we too are receiving that full redemptive state here spiritually now, but fully and completely physically once we get into heaven. That's what he's referring to as. But nonetheless, this gives us a picture of what baptism does for us. Baptism is a Physical representation of what Jesus Christ has done. Many of you have seen the symbol of the fish. All right? That actually goes all the way back to biblical times. Uh, when a person was to identify another Christian, and of course persecution and everything was going on, they would actually go into the sand there, and they would do one half of that fish. If you were to look at how the fish goes, it's kind of like a, a triangle, right? And it's kind of like an oval on the other end. They would, they would, they would uh, circle their foot with one half of that fish. If the other person was a Christian, they would understood what they meant. And so they would go, and they would circle it back, and they would complete that fish. The fish was a representation of the fact that they were Christians. Just as that fish is a symbol of Christianity, baptism is the ultimate symbol that we are followers of Christ. So if you were to think about the method, a person goes into the water, what they're doing is they're identifying with what Christ did. They're being buried, but they don't stay under there long. They're being raised as you die. They're staying and they're, and they're being raised again, just as Christ rose again from the grave. Baptism is an identification that we are now followers of Christ. So when it comes to the conclusion of this message here, what we see in this just this brief passage here with the inauguration of Jesus Christ, we see a man, Jesus, who is also God, fully obedient to the will of his Father, and going before and being baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. He followed the command of obedience, and he was identifying with the kingdom of God. We as Christians are not baptized in order to complete our salvation. We as Christians are baptized just as Jesus followed the command, to follow the commands of Scripture, to identify to the world whom we are now identifying with, and that is Jesus Christ in Christianity. Baptism is a step of obedience and identification. It is not a step of salvation.